So uh, our scripture reading that we're going to look at this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. Now, First uh, and Second Kings, uh, they're among the historical books in the middle of the Old Testament portion of uh, your Bibles. If you have a Bible and you're trying to turn there, that's where you would find it. It would be after the, uh, the historical books or after the, uh, the first five books, commonly referred to as the, the Pentateuch, uh, and before the, uh, the, the wisdom and the poetic books. So it's before the Psalms and it's after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where you'll find these books. Um, and First and Second Kings summarize the history of the political nation of Israel from the death of the, the famous King David. Uh, that happened in about 970 BC. Uh, they summarize history starting with the death of King David and they go through the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians and the destruction of the temple that happened in 586 BC. So First and Second Kings, that's what they're, they're covering. About 970 BC to 586 BC. The death of King David through the fall of Jerusalem to the, the Babylonians. Now a couple years ago, back in 2022, we studied the first part of First Kings. Basically chapters 1 through, uh, through 10 through, through 11. And that covered... That covered the reign of King Solomon. Uh, King Solomon was David's son, the wise King Solomon, the one who, uh, who wrote the book of Proverbs, uh, the one who, who built the temple, uh, but the one who nonetheless had some pretty significant problems. And we looked at, these, we looked at some of those problems last week, the problems that, that King Solomon had. Uh, but that period, the reign of King Solomon, basically covers, if you're kind of doing your chronology, uh, from 970 to 930 BC. So David died around 970, Solomon reigned for about 40 years and died around 930 BC, and then he died. That's where we ended last week. And then we pick up, the story picks up in chapter 12 and continues. The story of the kingdom after King David, after King Solomon. And that's what we want to do this winter over the course of the next few months is to survey the political history of this long extended time period, right? From, from when, when Solomon dies in about 930 BC uh, through the ultimate fall of Jerusalem in 586. Now, I'm just telling you now, we're not going to hit every chapter. We're not going to hit every story, including some of the, you know, some famous stories that, that, that uh, you might remember from Sunday school when you were a kid. We're not going to hit all of them, but we are going to try to get the sweep of the history. Uh, and, that's where, and that's where we're going to do. Now, where we're going to start, where we're going to dive in is right where we just were in 1 Kings chapter 12, right after the death of Solomon. And we're going to read what happens after that. And what I'm going to read now is verses 1 to 24. Now, it's a bit of a long passage, so I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you to, let, let's stay seated this week as we read, right? It's, it's always a balance, right? The, the intent of when we stand, typically for the scripture reading, is so that we focus on God's word, that we recognize it and honor it as God's word. Well, you can honor it as you're sitting too, and so I would encourage the same attitude as we read, but I want you to focus, and I don't want you after a couple of minutes to be like, when are we going to sit down? Because that's just going to distract you from the text. And the goal is to not distract you from the text. So let's, let's look at it. Now, at the end of 1 Kings 11, the chapter ends with this statement. This is verse 43 of 1 Kings 11. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. That's where we ended. And then, chapter 12, verse 1, this is where we begin. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, 
for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt and they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father, he's talking about Solomon, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his yoke on us and we will serve you. He said to them, this is Rehoboam saying to the people, he said to them, go away for three days and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he, Rehoboam, he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we may answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who say to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. All right, just pause for a second. We're not done with the reading, but just are you tracking with where we are, with what's going on here? All right, we'll talk about it in more detail in a minute, but don't get lost halfway through the, the passage, right? We've got Rehoboam. The son, now the son of Solomon, now the king of, of Israel, he travels to the northern part of the, the kingdom trying to do a little consolidation of power and he considers a request from the people, right? right? He gets counsel as to the request and then he gives them this response. That's what we've read so far, okay? All right, now let's keep reading. Right? How do the people react? Verses 16 to 24. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam said to Adoram, who was taskmaster, taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, go to Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. 
So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, several years ago, I read a book um, uh, called Three Days in January. Uh, it was written by Brett Baer. You may have heard of him. Uh, Brett Baer uh, is a, a correspondent for uh, Fox News, political correspondent. And he's written a number of historical books. And uh, this particular book, Three Days in January, uh, was written about the, farewell, the three days between the farewell address of President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, which occurred on January 17th of 1961, and then the inaugural address of President John Kennedy, which occurred three days later on January 20th. Both speeches regarded as historical monuments that highlight the shift of a, of a generation and setting the tone for what would then unfold in the, in the coming decades. And the book was fairly successful. And so Bear uh, said, you know, I think I got an idea for a series here. So in 2018, just a year later, uh, he published another book in the Three Days series, this one called Three Days in Moscow. And this was about the three-day visit of President Reagan to Moscow in the Soviet Union, the last three days of May in 1988. It was the fourth, the final summit that, uh, that Gorbachev and Reagan had uh, that made, according to, uh, to the thesis, made the, the hinge moment, these three days, the hinge moment at the end of the Cold War transitioning to the world uh, in which we, uh, we live today. Right? And then in 2020, okay, the three days, it's working, the theme, I like this, uh, Bear published another three days book called Three Days at the Brink. This was about the, the Tehran Conference in November of 1943. President Roosevelt, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, they met secretly in British-controlled Iran to create the strategy that would determine the course of the, of the Second World War and would ultimately uh, set in motion a lot of events about what would follow in the decades to come. Now, each of these books, they obviously, they're not just about those three days. They talk about the context, what happened before, uh, what, what came afterward. But the interesting observation that I think they bring up is that there are times when one can look at history and find a concentrated moment, right? In this case, three days where the path of history turns a corner, Right? And where the world is never the same as a result. Now, I'd suggest that we could write a book here called Three Days at Shechem. Right? Because what occurs here in what we just read alters the course of history for, for generations. Now, it's not without historical context. The backstory is necessary to understand what's happening. But the events in the first part of chapter 12, and specifically the decision made by Rehoboam during those three days, is where the road turns for Israel. These three days. Because after about 80 years of unity and relative prosperity under the rule of King David and under the rule of King Solomon, right, the nation of Israel will never be the same after these three days. All right, so let's talk about it like this. Three headings. Uh, first heading, they're printed in your bulletin. The first heading is the question for the king. And that's really the first 15 verses that we read. The second heading is the consequences for the nation. That's really verses 16 to 24. And the last heading is the plan for victory. That's really how we can make sense of it all. All right, so that's the map. The question for the king, the consequences for the nation, and the plan for victory. Now, first, the question for the king. And to cut right to it, the question really that's being asked of, of Rehoboam is, what kind of king are you going to be? What kind of leader are you going to be? And this is how it goes down, okay? We need to understand what we read in those first 15 verses, right? Remember, the capital of the united Israel under David and under Solomon is Jerusalem. That happened during the reign of King David. He established the, uh, the, 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 the capital in Jerusalem. 
And David's son Solomon, he really built it up. Big palace, beautiful temple, all that. But Jerusalem is located in the territory of the tribe of Judah in the southern part of the, of the country. That makes sense. David was from the tribe of Judah. All according to the, the prophecy going all the way back to, to Jacob that the, the scepter of royal rule would come from, from Judah. Right? So the ruler came from Judah, the king came from Judah, the capital city in the territory of Judah. That's where David lived, that's where he ruled, that's where Solomon lived, that's where Solomon ruled. That was, that was the base for where Solomon's son would rule as well. That was the idea. But Israel was always a confederation of 12 different tribes. 12 sons of Jacob originally, and they maintained, these 12 tribes maintained their identity through centuries of slavery in Egypt. Right? through decades of wandering in the, in the desert after Exodus, and when they got to the promised land, and ultimately God gives them this land, he gives it to them and divides it up according to these different tribes, these 12 tribes. And there had always been sort of a, a little bit of a, of a north-south beef, always a little bit of tension between the north and the, and the south. And so it makes sense that one of the first things that Rehoboam does as the new king is make a trip to the to the north. He's trying to consolidate power to ensure the, uh, the support of the people there for his rule. Smart politics so far, right? Very wise. Right? And he goes to Shechem, and that makes sense. It's a place of, of some significance. It's the very first city that, that Abraham visited in the Promised Land, back Genesis chapter 12. It was a place of, of covenant renewal in the time of Joshua. Uh, Jacob's son Joseph, when they came into the Promised Land, that's where they took his his remains and ultimately buried him. Shechem was a place of significance in the north. And there's no reason at the outset at least to assume that the people there in Shechem in the north, that they were, that they were definitely going to reject him. In fact, in verse 1 it says they came to Shechem to make him king. Sort of a regional coronation ceremony. But Rehoboam gets there and he runs into Jeroboam. All right, now don't get the names confused. This is very, this is somewhat confusing because they rhyme, right? Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, right? Okay, you got it. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. That's Rehoboam. He's the king. He's the rightful heir to the, to the throne. Jeroboam, remember we learned the backstory last week in chapter 11, right? He had been a rising star, an executive in Solomon's government. Very able, very industrious. That was Jeroboam. Well, God sent a prophet, we read this last week, to Jeroboam and lets him in on a secret. Let's tell, he goes to the prophet and he says, tell, tell Jeroboam that I'm going to split the kingdom. I don't like what's going on here with Solomon. I don't like the way that he has turned away from me and encouraged the worship of other, other gods and this is what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to split the kingdom, Jeroboam, and I'm going to give a significant part of it to you. Well, Solomon hears about this prophecy and he's not happy. He tries to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam runs away to Egypt and he's there in hiding. Well, Solomon's dead now. Jeroboam hears about it and he either decides to come to Shechem on his own or he's invited by the people there to, to, to come back. Maybe a little bit of of both, but the confrontation is set. You've got Rehoboam, the rightful king, hosting a rally, town hall meeting in Shechem, um, and, and Jeroboam, the political exile, now come back to, to cause a little bit of, of trouble. And he, in some sense, is uh, elected as the people's representative. And they're making a, a, a request, a demand of the king. Right? And we read what they said in verse 4. They said, look, Rehoboam, your dad made it really difficult for us. 
Uh, we, we worked really hard for these big building projects, and they mainly benefited Jerusalem, mainly benefited uh, the South. Now cut us a break, will you? I mean, just lighten, us, lighten the load a little bit. And yeah, we'll serve you, but just let's dial, it, let's dial it back. Now, I'm saying it very sympathetically, right? The scholars, the commentators, they debate how much of the accusation that's made against Solomon here was actually true and how much of it was just grumbling how much of it was a power play and how much of it was legitimate injustice, right? I mean, labor management disputes, they're always messy. No matter which way you might lean and how you interpret it, one of the things that you can probably be sure to, to try to avoid is an oversimplification, right? There, there's a lot going on here. But one way or another, the question posed to Rehoboam is pretty clear. Would you reconsider your approach to labor management? What kind of king are you going to be of your people? And Rehoboam, at the very least, senses that a hasty answer might not be a good idea, so he asks for three days. Give me three days to think this through. And from that request, you get a little bit of an indication that, that, there is a, that, that there's some sort of significance to, to this. In fact, there is biblical precedent for this idea of, of, of three days in Exodus 19. God's preparing Moses and the people for the big meeting at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And the Lord tells Moses to say to the people, go prepare yourself for this big day. Today and tomorrow you should consecrate yourselves and wash your garments. And then on the third day, I'm going to come down. Right? That's when I'm going to come down, on the third day. Let's get ready on the third day. Something big's going to happen, right? You could write the book, Three Days at Sinai. Now, then years later, centuries after Rehoboam, in fact, you see the pattern again, the book of Esther. Remember the story of Esther? Queen of Persia, Jewish, agrees to step in and plead with the king for the lives of the Jewish people because a mass uh, genocide was being planned against the Jewish people. And Esther tells her uncle Mordecai, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not sure how the king's going to react. It might cost me my life, right? But before I do, I want you to gather all the Jews in the city and I want them to pray and to fast for three days and then I'll go before the king on the third day you could write the book three days in Persia all right, well, here we're back three days at Shechem right and we read about him in verses 6 to 11 the summary of Rehoboam's three-day deliberation and he doesn't just lock himself in a room to meditate quietly in the dark all by himself he asks for advice from two different groups and we see clues as you read these accounts, that Rehoboam is predisposed to listen to one group over the other, but nonetheless, there's two groups that he asks, and the question that he asks is basically the same. How do I respond to this request? How do I respond to Jeroboam and the people and their request to lighten the load? Right? What should I tell them on the third day? And first he asks the old men. These were Solomon's advisors, his father's advisors, and you read their advice in verse 7. Right? They basically say, look, it, leadership is built on service. Serve the people. Display for them your care, your concern for them, and then they will serve you as, as, as their rightful king. That's the leader you should be. Now, we get immediately, immediate commentary from the author in verse 8. Rehoboam doesn't like that advice. He's not going to go with that. Instead, he goes to the second group, the young men. These were his buddies. And he asks them the same question. What should I tell the people on the third day? And their advice is the exact opposite of the old men. They tell Rehoboam that he should do two things. He said, I want you, they, he, they, they say, I want you to do two things. First, you go to the people and you insult them. You make fun of them. That's the comment about the little finger in verse 10. It's actually significantly cruder and more vulgar than the translators are willing to render it. Right? But that's the first thing, insult them. Second thing, after you insult them, 
right? They say you should tell them that not only are you not going to make it easier for them, you're going to make it harder, right? You're going to turn down the screws. In other words, the counsel of the young men is, Rehoboam, this is a test. You've got to show them who's boss. Right? Don't let them push you around, right? Sometimes you've got to be a little bit of a, of a bully if you want people to listen to you, right? Now, that's a viewpoint. That's an approach that hasn't gone away, right? The approach that, look, sometimes you need to be a jerk, a little bit of a jerk. You need to put your servants in their place. Remind them who serves who here, right? Only two kinds of people in the world. This is what many people will say. This is what a lot of the advice that particularly young men are being given today. Look, there's those who serve and those who get served. And you, if you want to be a real man, well, uh, pick your side. Make it clear and, and make it plain that others are going to serve, serve you. Well, that advice will honestly be more attractive, honestly, to, to those leaders that are insecure, to those that are desperately craving respect, but so insecure that deep down they know they don't deserve it. And that's what Rehoboam is. So on the third day, verse 12, that's the answer he gives. He skips the vulgar insult, or at least it's not recorded for us, but he makes it very clear that he has no intention of listening to the concerns and the demands of the people. Right? And because they're so insolent, to even raise the question, he's going to make life harder for him. That's the point. That's point number one. Question for the king. Three days at Shechem. And what follows, verses 16 to 24, is point number two. Point number two. These are the consequences. Right? Because these three days at Shechem turn the course of history for Israel. Right? The people revolt against Rehoboam, against the kingdom, against the king. Verse 16, right? They basically say, look, we're obviously not welcome here. We have no inheritance in the, in, in the son of Jesse. Everyone for yourself, right? Every man to his own tent. And we're talking about a very significant group of people. This isn't just small, some small, like, you know, this little group of rabble-rousers. No, this is a significant number of people. The tribe of Judah, and we learn later the tribe of Benjamin, are the only two tribes that stay loyal to Rehoboam, both these two tribes in the, in the south. The rest, all of the ten, other, all ten of the other tribes, they all bolt. And they unite, just as the prophecy had said, very convenient, under a new king, the political exile from Solomon's day, Jeroboam. And from this point forward, the monarchy that had been united for 80 years under David and Solomon, longer if you include some of Saul's time in that, but from this point forward, the united monarchy will be no more. It will be split. 80 years, all the military victories of David, all the splendor and all the grandeur of Solomon, all crashing down because of three days at Shechem. Now, Rehoboam tries to stay, stay tough. Did you see this? He sends an ambassador, a Dorum, a taskmaster. He says, go talk to him. You go get them in line. Send somebody. That doesn't go well. They stone him to death. He's done. Now, Rehoboam is starting to sense like, okay, this could be, this could be dangerous. I'm not sure I've got adequate secret service protection here. So he, he hightails it out of town. He hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. That's what it says. But he's not done being tough. He goes back to Jerusalem to rally the base. Raises an army from Judah and Benjamin. What's it say, right? 180,000 chosen warriors. These aren't just peasants with pitchforks. He's assembling an army. Warriors. And now we don't know if the young men are still in his ear, but he's taking the same, the same tack. He's like, look, you've got to show him who's boss here. Go get the army. You've got to squash this now. But then things de-escalate, interestingly. It says in verse 22, the word of the Lord came to uh, Shemaiah, the prophet, and God says, tell Jeroboam to stand down. Send the troops home, for this thing is from me. And to the shock of, of any reader who might have been reading up to this point, Jeroboam stands down. 
Right? At least this can be said of them. The North-South conflict, it's not over. It's actually just getting started. But for now, full-scale war is averted for the first time. Uh, first time here, either this rare display of wisdom and obedience to the word of the Lord. But the consequences nonetheless remain. At the very least, you have a foolish, insecure king who is prone to listen to bad counsel, who is on the throne of David in the south. And at the very least, you have an opportunistic king leading a breakaway kingdom of rebels in the, in the north. And they are rebels, right? They're not freedom fighters. The repeated references to David, right? There's four of them in verses 16 to 19. Over and over again, it mentions David, the house of David, David, right? It's intended to drive it home. They are rebelling against David. What's David? Remember 2 Samuel 7, the covenant that God made with David. The rightful king of Israel sits on the throne of David, comes from the tribe of Judah, right? And the author of 1 Kings is trying to make that point very, very clear here. The people may be in political rebellion against Rehoboam, but more importantly, they are in spiritual rebellion against the salvation of the house of David, against the plan of salvation that comes and only comes through the king in the line of David. Now, that does not mean that God's plan is actually in danger. Now, you still got a plan, and it's not plan B. It's not an emergency response plan, as if he's reacting, right? It's not a plan of containment. It is, and this is the last point, the plan for victory. If there's one thing that is unmistakable throughout this incident that we read in these verses that we read in 1 Kings 12, one thing that you can't miss is this. Not one thing is happening before, during, or after the three days at Shechem that is not right in the middle of God's plan. We saw it last week in chapter 11. The prophet Ahijah had told Jeroboam all this was going to happen way back when Solomon was still king, before Jeroboam fled to Egypt. He said, look, Solomon's house has forsaken me and worshiped false gods. I'm going to use you as an instrument of discipline and I'm going to split his kingdom. You're going to get 10 parts and his son is going to get two. It was already planned. Now, does that mean that Jeroboam is the good guy? No, he's not the good guy. Just wait till next week, right? So we go next week and we see, right? Being the king of Israel doesn't make him a faithful follower of the Lord, right? Jeroboam isn't the righteous defender of the, the weak and the, and the powerless. He's not a freedom fighter. Don't simplify the narrative that way. He's an arrogant, rebellious king, but he does nothing outside of the sovereignty of God. And we know that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, we know that he isn't the good guy. He didn't listen to the people. He ignored wise counsel. But in our text, in verse 15, what's the reason for why Israel rebelled against him? What does it say? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. A turn of affairs, a twist in the story from the Lord. Now how this happens, right? How God's sovereignty works through, through man's free choices, even through man's stupid free choices. How that works, that's a subject for many books, but that's exactly what's here. And what that means is that there's ultimate hope that is woven throughout this chapter throughout these events the decisions even the stupidity of all the characters of the story is completely under the sovereign control and plan of God in fact Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis he warns us don't be distracted into simply viewing this as an MBA case study on organizational leadership you could use it for that right and there's elements there's lessons real lessons you could learn but that's not the main focus Right? What's prominent here is not the decisions and the counsels and the, and the words of men. What's prominent here is the plan and the word of God. Uh, Dr. Davis says, big men, especially royal arrogant ones, 
Big men are simply little servants of Yahweh's word. Contrary to our fears, human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Do you hear that? It's very helpful for us in the world in which we live. Human stupidity is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Right? No accident in God's providence, I think, that we come to these chapters, that we're doing this study this year at the beginning of what will be a crazy election year in the United States. And we're going to spend the next two months seeing over and over again God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of political chaos. God is faithful. And as Christians in this age of 2024, far more than the faithful of, of 930 BC, we actually have been given the ultimate reason to trust the plan. And that it's not just a plan of containment, it is a plan of victory. There are no heroes here in 1 Kings chapter 12, right? Save the ultimate king who will come from the house of David, right? This would be a son of David, a son of Solomon, who centuries later would be faced with the very same question of what a leader ought to be like. And this king would teach his disciples what a ruler should do, right? Turn and look, Mark chapter 10, verse 42. If you can turn there, turn and look. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's as if the old men were onto something in their counsel. Be a servant to this people and serve them and then they will be your servants forever. And what's the basis for that? The basis for what Jesus is saying. He keeps going in Mark chapter 10, right? Why does greatness come through service, right? Who do you have to look to in that? He says, for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus doing, right? What's he talking about? He's talking about the final book in the three days series. <laughs> the, the, one who God, the, one, the one that God wrote three days at Jerusalem. You remember that story? Right? The ultimate act of God's sovereignty over human stupidity. Jesus told his disciples it was going to happen. Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised. When? On the third day. The most pivotal three days in the history of the world didn't happen at Shechem. Didn't happen in Tehran. Didn't happen in Moscow. It happened in Jerusalem where the son of Solomon became the ultimate servant of an oppressed people and took on the burdens that they couldn't bear and chose to lighten their load from the unbearable yoke of their sin, of our sin. He took the whips, the sting of the scorpions. He died the death of a rebel to show not his weakness, but to show his ultimate strength. Because then, on the third day, the day when the verdict is announced, the day when the decision comes back, the day of finality, the third day. On the third day, the king returns. And his answer to the people on the third day is not one of judgment and condemnation. It's one of grace. Because the burden is relieved. The debt is paid. And you, each of you, if you would put your faith and your trust in the truth of these three days, each of you are now free. Free to serve him not out of fear. Free to serve him, not, not because he's bigger and tougher. He is big and he is tough and he's much bigger and tougher than you. That is our King Jesus. But that's not why. Free to serve him because he first served you. A loyalty to him, to the one who showed the greatest act of leadership, the greatest act of service that the world has ever seen.
Now, these are takeaways, these are conclusions that we will need over the next few months as we study the political chaos in a divided kingdom and when we try to apply it to our lives. Takeaways to keep in mind. Here are the, here, here are the four on my list as we close. Right, four takeaways from, from this. First, pay attention to wisdom. That's not irrelevant. Seek wise counsel. Trust your sources of advice. Don't be stupid. Right? That is still good advice. 1 Kings 12 is more than that, but it's not less than that. So start there. Now, but second lesson. If, if you lead, lead like Jesus. Serve those you lead. Service, concern for those who are under your care. It is not weakness. It is true strength. Three, trust in the plan. When the world's leaders argue over the size of their fingers, look to the 30 days that changed the history of the world. Right? While they debate among themselves, look to the three days that changed the history of the world when the Son of God, incarnate in the person of Jesus, spread his fingers and took nails through his hands and died in your service so that victory would occur on the third day. That's where you fix your gaze. And finally... Serve that king. If you have a king, King Jesus, who has served you like that, think about it. Should you not rededicate your life to serving him forever? Right, how could you do any less? You can't earn what he's done. You can't pay it back. But who would not want to serve a king like that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those three days. Those three days which changed the course of all of human history. Three days where you died and then rose again, paying for us the penalty that we couldn't pay and inviting us to come into your presence forgiven and serve you forever. Lord, may we do that. May we be your servants. May we honor you in all we do. Amen.